Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Another episode of the Need to Know podcast and bringing back an old friend, Ann Kokus, who is a Wilson China Fellow uh, at the Wilson Center and also an Associate Professor of Media Studies at the University of Virginia and a Senior, senior Faculty Fellow at the Miller Center. And with so much going on in recent days that we keep hearing about China and its influence in media and celebrity culture, uh, with her media studies background, I wanted to bring her back. Anne, welcome back. Oh, Aaron, it's a great, it's a great pleasure to be back. Thank you for having me. Well, I always, I always enjoy talking to you, and your research area is so interesting to me. And if uh, listeners are just now getting tuned into the Need to Know podcast, you can go back to one of our very first episodes, which is actually our most listened to episode which is, is China dictating what we see at the movies. We've also done an episode of Is China Dictating What We See on TV? And we've talked a little bit on these issues, but China has a outsized influence in American media culture that I think a lot of people don't realize. And, and I guess just by way of refresher, could you just give us a little overview of that? Yeah, so there's actually a big change that has happened since we last spoke, Aaron. Uh, during our earlier conversations, the U.S. was officially the biggest box office in the world. Um, as of 2020, that changed. So China is now the world's biggest theatrical box office, meaning when movies debut, it's more important for them to have, to have big numbers in China than it is for them to have big numbers in the United States. It looks like that trend might continue through 2021 because of the slow reopening of theaters here in, in the U.S. Um, but for a film like, for a big blockbuster film to be able to recoup its investment, it needs to do well in China and ne it needs to have a release there. And that matters uh, for something like the Fast and Furious franchise, perhaps? So actually the Fast and Furious franchise is an emblem of that phenomenon because they have done so well in China. So things like Star Wars actually have only had relatively tepid performance in the Chinese market, largely because a lot of Star Wars performance relies on a nostalgia for a type of mythology and narratives that people learned about in their childhood in the 70s and in the 80s when the Chinese box office wasn't open to foreign films. So, but films like the Fast and Furious series with their focus on action spectacles and fast cars uh, and not a reliance on specific types of mythologies, are able to do really, really well and have consistently done well from the very beginning in the Chinese market. And that brings us to John Cena. I'm tempted to play his entrance music here. Um, so the, you know, it seems like there was, there was quite a face plant here from John Cena on the issue of Taiwan. And I'm sure most of our listeners probably know what's going on, but Tell us what prompts 
celebrities like this to have these kind of backtracks. We've seen this in the NBA. We've seen this with among movie stars and other celebrities where there's some sort of faux pas about China that's come up and then they seem to be forced, it seems, to apologize and, and make good. So this was a really, really interesting circumstance where in Mandarin, John Cena mentioned that he was very excited that Taiwan would be the first country to see the Fast and Fear, to see F9. Now, there are a lot of different ways that this went wrong. First of all, he referred to Taiwan as a country in not just a public broadcast, but in a public broadcast in Mandarin. So this hits on a wide variety of different issues. So first of all, the question of Taiwan sovereignty, which I am sure that the Fast, the F9 and the Fast and Furious series did not want to weigh in on, but did inadvertently. Second, this could then be immediately shared and reported on Chinese social media and in Chinese and in the Chinese press without translation. So had he said this in English, it probably would have been an issue, but it would not have immediately blown up. But because he said it in Mandarin, it became a huge issue. Now, the fact that John Cena can speak Mandarin well enough to give a press conference in it indicates how much of a priority it is to be able to perform well in this market. So it's clear that the guy was really trying. I, I think somebody's tutor probably got fired after this event, but... Um, Learning a language does not school you on the geopolitics, though. No, no, it, it does not. So what was China's response to John Cena's uh, speaking in Mandarin and calling... Taiwan, a, poly, uh, a country. So, I mean, immediate condemnation. And there's also the threat that the film won't be released in in the Chinese market, in the mainland Chinese market. Now, was that an implicit threat or was there actually a threat to remove F9 from being released? Or do we know? From what I've read so far, it's more of an implicit threat, but things have been removed from the Chinese from the Chinese market for far, far less. And we've talked before about China's ability to you know kind of get past the censors, right? If you want this movie to be shown here, you can't show this scene of Shanghai with laundry in the alleyways, and you'd have to change characters so that they're not uh, Chinese, but maybe be Celtic or something like that. We've we've had those discussions before. Yeah, absolutely. And when we and when we talk about censorship in China, the kind of first thing that comes up are the three T's. So that's Taiwan, Tiananmen and Tibet. And John Cena successfully hit on one of the three T's, which are one of the things that kind of almost guarantee you at least a, at least a, additional official attention, if not complete abolition. So we've seen this, too, with other celebrities, but there is a he apologized john cena apologized um and now there's a backlash in the united states of why are you groveling to the chinese this seems to happen over and over again there's a a recognition that celebrities are doing this but it doesn't seem like anybody's really catching on that there's a pattern here yeah well i think that the important part is to think about is to separate this out a little bit so 
U.S. celebrities are beholden to other markets. Not necessarily to other governments. However, those markets are beholden to those, to their governments. So what might seem to be on the part of a U.S. of an American celebrity, just a gesture to respecting or responding to the preferences of that market. In the case of a place like China, where the Chinese government has an iron grip on the Chinese film market, that is, in essence, capitulating to the demands of the Chinese government. Whereas in other places, you know, if if John Cena was making a response in um, just to a to a public criticism in France or in Germany, this might be a you know pop, popular response in order to just a, address the questions of the market or popular preference. But that's not the relationship between the market and the state in China. So the Chinese Communist Party is making is is causing very capitalist decisions to occur. I like to think of it as the Chinese Communist Party leveraging American capitalism for its own interests. Well, that's an interesting discussion. Okay, so um, that and and then I uh, just want to pivot a little bit because another issue that is related to this is what's going on in Xinjiang province. And our listeners will know that just a, just a couple episodes ago, we had our friends Ray Zong and Bradley Jardin on here to talk about this very issue. Um, but there's been some repercussions on the Xinjiang issue that China has has kind of slapped some American corporations for. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I'm actually not sure if H&M is based in the U.S., but they're definitely a, they might be. Um, but in any case, H&M was a kind of big, um, big recipient of this attention when they spoke out about um, about production about Xinjiang, and then all H and M stores were removed from the Baidu mapping service in China. So you couldn't find a H and M store by using um, a, a map, uh, the major mapping app. So this would this would be like our Google Maps or yeah, Apple Maps. it would be like if Google Maps took all H and M stores off of the off of the off of the grid and you could only find it if you knew exactly where the store was. So it's kind of a type of Chinese cancel culture. Um, but done with the collaboration of the government and the tech industry. And of course with the wonders of Google I could see that that H&M is actually a Swedish company, but western nonetheless. There has been this sort of coalition of western push on Xinjiang and and uh, attention that's been placed on it. Which has caused the Chinese to kind of do their own goodwill tours of, you know, come see the factories and, you know, of course, they're heavily monitored and uh, they've got a minder that goes through. Um, but you, at the same time, you have this other approach that they're taking, which is essentially cancel culture, like you say. Yeah. So this becomes really interesting because it's a it directly impacts the market access for these firms. And. Um, again, related to the, to the Taiwan issue, we saw that when Delta and Marriott listed Taiwan as a, as a country or as a, as its own independent market separate from, um, the PRC, they also faced pushback, um, and the, and inaccessibility of their platforms until they, until they backtracked. So it's not just about media. It's also about kind of any consumer goods that, um, that might have a big market in China. 
You got to testify on these issues before a House committee just a few weeks back, right? So I testified in the Senate Finance Committee and we did, we talked about, we talked about some of these issues as well. Um, the challenge that U.S. companies face with regard to corporate censorship as a, um, in order to access the, the Chinese market. And I like to think of this as kind of the, the monkey in, the monkey with his hand in the great problem, right? So there's this old parable about the monkey who has his hand in a grate and there's something very appealing, like a banana or, or some kind of treat at the bottom of the, of the grate. And he's grabbing onto it. And when his fist is grabbing onto the treat, he can't pull it out. So he's stuck. If the monkey let go of the treat, he could pull his hand out. The challenge is for a lot of U.S. companies is they're like that monkey with the hope of accessing the Chinese market. And the tantalizing growth, the robust potential for financial return lead them into a position where they're kind of trapped by their own interests and also trapped by the pressure from the U.S. stock market to continue to grow their markets. Right. This is the same story we've heard for centuries, really, that this is when you've grown as much as you can in the West, you start looking elsewhere uh, and there's only one way to look. And. When you do things like testimony and talk to policymakers, members of Congress, etc., uh, are they understanding this, that this dynamic exists between U.S. and China beyond the normal U.S. competition like we heard in the president's speech a few weeks back, but that this dynamic exists, and is there anything that can be done about it? Well, I think the challenge is that members of Congress and their staffs and regulators realize that this is a feature of American capitalism, this ability to go abroad and to build new markets, and that a lot of these companies and their economic success feed back into the domestic economic growth in the U.S. The other challenging issue is that a lot of companies with large presence in China are major campaign donors. So it becomes difficult to push back on their income generating opportunities in, in the Chinese market. So there are things that, that we could do in terms of prohibiting market access or, you know, creating different standards for how companies, which countries that countries, uh, companies could engage in or what they can and can't do globally. But the problem is there are really big financial incentives on the other side. So I think that there's broad bipartisan awareness of the challenges being a part of the Chinese market um, creates in terms of uh, questions of censorship, questions of IP transfer, um, questions of empowering the Chinese government by um, giving it access to American corporations, the data of American firms um, that can then be used to develop um, both advanced commercial and military products. Uh, but those are all counterbalanced by the fact that it's the largest market in the world for most of these products. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating situation. I always love talking to you about it. And I think that uh, whenever, whenever these kinds of things pop up, it's always a pleasure to have you on. 
Oh, well, it's a pleasure to talk about it. And, and I just want to take a, take a quick shout out to say to John, John Cena that I really appreciate his effort to learn Chinese. And, and I hope it doesn't dissuade other people from trying because, uh, as a, as a former Chinese teacher, it was kind of heartwarming to see him, to see him try. Unfortunately, the, the outcome was probably not what he hoped for. Well, if John Cena is listening, please uh, email me at needtoknow at wilsoncenter.org. We'll be happy to have you on the podcast. We'd love to do it. Me and Anne can do a little roundtable discussion with you about this challenge that you've had. But until then, we certainly uh, really appreciate Anne Kokus's insight on these issues. And we will certainly have you back again. I think uh, you're, you're one of our rec- recurring guests and uh, I think that there's definitely an interest in your work and research because uh, it's... It's unique, I think, in in that in the academic world. You've written a couple of books on this, uh, um, and I, I think you have one that will hopefully be out soon too. So yeah, we're we're actually we're we're really happy about that. And we'll have you on when that comes out for sure. That would be amazing. Well, I that gives me incentive to to keep working on it, uh, to keep revising and, and making it better. So, um, Aaron, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure as always to talk with you. <laughs>